The High Power Hangout is a podcast that promotes and supports firearms, sports, and firearm safety. I do not support crime, negligence, illegal actions, or misuse of firearms. Always treat every firearm as if it was loaded, point them in a safe direction, and never put your finger on the trigger until you intend to safely fire and always be aware of what's behind your target. Discussions on this podcast, write-ins, or guest appearances are not responsible for your actions or inactions as a result of content covered in the show. Do not use reloading data from the show without working up from a considerably more conservative charge and solely working up until a safe load can be obtained. Hey, hey, my people, welcome back to the High Power Hangout. I'm JP, and today is Thursday, December 14th, 2023. Dagum, it's been a couple of weeks since the last episode, but as promised, the Podcast Development Department, or the PDD, is still churning out tons of thoughts, creating fun ideas, and learning from an outpouring of listeners' emails that have started to flood in over the last couple of weeks. Today, we have a long one. It's a backlog of stuff that's popped up, as well as some hold me over for the next few weeks while I orchestrate a big housing move. Today's a lot of random smattering lined up in the form of listener feedback emails, a quick highlight for a new home range that I've been eyeing over the last few months, a mental machine that's been a brewing over the last few weeks, a brief and sooty technique talk, and some other goodies spread around like cold butter on hot toast. Let's get into the mix and get going. Welcome back. Hey folks, it's JP. I'm coming back to you after I've already recorded and edited this episode here just to let you know that I'm in a temporary location. There's echo in an empty room. There's stuff going on in the outside. There's tons of distractions around me. So I want to apologize ahead of time about the audio quality because you're going to notice it sounds a little weird, but it's the best I could do and my time's run out. So without further ado, I will turn you loose on episode 32. Enjoy the episode. Check, check. Wow, that is a lot of reverb. Sorry, we are in a new location today and it's a bit echoey without the music. All right. All right, that's a little better. Thanks for settling in for the 32nd installment of the High Power Hangout. Boy, number 32. We are almost catching up with my age. I am excited about this episode. Honestly, it's just a bunch of randomness today, but nevertheless, it's going to be useful to somebody, hopefully like a well-crafted steak with a side of pizza rolls, which I microwave, by the way. The pizza rolls, not the steak. I'm not a monster. I was hoping to have this episode out about two weeks ago, and I had intentions of getting it all written and compiled together during a week-long, much-needed vacation to Scotland during my downtime. But unfortunately, I was semi-incoherent at the time due to... uh, fatigue. Yeah, we'll call it fatigue. Right. So let's kick off today with something that I was thinking about the other day while I was driving. Now, full disclosure, once you hear this segment, you cannot unhear it. So get ready or skip it. Why do some people say gun? Some people say rifle and some people say firearm. I personally have no idea. I have always said firearm until I heard Conrad, praise be his name, refer to it as a rifle in one of his YouTube videos. Then I thought to myself, that's probably a better descriptor of what we're shooting than just firearm. A cannon can be a firearm, a 22 long rifle can be a firearm, a pistol can be a firearm. So what makes that word unique anyway? So now I just refer to it as a rifle because that's what it is, a rifled barrel Firearm, a rifle, whatever. Uh, But where the heck does the word gun come from? That's where I was starting here. It's so slangy. To my knowledge, it's not short for anything like 
gun arm or gunomechanical thing. So why do we even have this word? So I investigated it like I do for a podcast. From etymonline.com, a quick etymology of the word gun. And none of this is my own knowledge. I'm just quoting from the site to share the information with you here. And forgive my poor pronunciation with the words that are outside and sometimes inside of the English language. Here we go. Gun, noun, mid-14th century. Guna, an engine of war that throws rocks, arrows, or other missiles from a tube by the force of explosive powder or other substance. Apparently a shortening of a woman's name, Gunilda, found in Middle English, Gonilde, cannon, and in Anglo-Latin reference to a specific gun from the 1330 munitions inventory of Windsor Castle. Not going to pronounce that correctly, moving on. Also compared to Gonilda, Gnosta, spark or flame used to fire a cannon from the early 14th century. A woman's name from Old Norse, Gunildr, a compound of gunner and hilder, meaning both war and battle. First element from Gwen to strike and kill. The identification of a woman with a powerful weapon is common historically, such as Big Bertha, Brown Bess, Mons Meg. Am I allowed to even say that here? Uh, or is that like Monster Meg? Yeah, Mons Meg, Monster Meg. Anyway, or perhaps gun is directly from the old Norse gunner, battle. The word was perhaps influenced by or confirmed by or possibly from the old French engon, dialect variant of engine. Meaning grew with technology from cannons to firearms as they developed in the 15th century, popularly applied to pistols and revolvers from 1744. In modern military use, the word is restricted to cannons, which be mounted, especially long ones for the use of high velocity and long trajectory. Hence, Great guns, 1884 is an exclamation distinguished from small guns, such as muskets, from around 1400. End quote. Well, that was way more than I needed to know, and definitely did not definitively answer my question, so I guess we'll never know what a gun really is. In other news, I had a listener named Barrett, who was new to the show, ask if I could create a list of reading resources to him that relate to high power. Good timing, Barrett, because another listener named Ben just threw out another training reference that I still have not read, but I did place a hold on it with my local library to read. Yes, that's still a thing. Yes, I have a library card, and technically I'm a millennial. Take that, boomers. A and Gen Z while we're at it. Get off your phones, leave your bedroom, and go check out a library book. All the cool kids are doing it. So, here's what I sent back to Barrett, and then had the addition of Ben's reference which I'm champing at the bit to read upon soon. Prone and Long Range Rifle Shooting by Nancy Tompkins. It's a great book for match rifle, wind reading, and prone shooting. High Power Rifle by G. David Tubb. Also great for match rifle, though prior to the modern space guns, and a lot of the mechanics, though, of what he discusses will carry over into modern service rifle. The Wind Book for Rifle Shooters by Linda K. Miller and Captain Keith Cunningham. Absolutely a must for developing wind strategies and learning about how much you just don't know about wind and wind reading. With Winning in Mind by Lanny Basham. 100% necessary for building up your mental game. And Bullseye Mind by Dr. Raymond Pryor. See the previous. 100% necessary for building your mental game. 
Now, a recommendation from Ben Out West was The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle. The Talent Code. And a follow-up to that book called The Little Book of Talent, also by Coyle. If we were to write a book on my talent level, it would definitely be titled The Even Littler Book of Talent. Ben Out West is transitioning from my alma mater of metallic silhouette to the beloved high power. Watch out, guys and gals. Here comes another offhand master. Ben is using training strategies from this book during the offseason on a scat device. He's going to be hard to beat once he gets the hang of the sport. Trust me. Also, in other news, not necessarily hot off the press, though, I saw that White Oak has started selling Geisley barrels on their website. These things are awesome. I had the pleasure of putting one of these seven twist prototypes through testing during the second half of the 2023 season, just before Camp Perry, and I was thoroughly impressed. My prototype barrel that John Holliger installed was sort of an oddity because of the construction of it in the form of some slightly slanted riflings, but you'd never be able to tell based on its performance. I had a little time before Perry to do some load testing and get it dialed in, which proved to be the same workload as all the other barrels that I've worked up loads for from White Oak. Out of the barrels that I've had, I'd probably put this one up there with the Kriegers and the Bart lines. Now keep in mind, that's with only about a thousand rounds through it as we speak, as far as my memory serves, so I can't claim that it's any better because there's still a long way to go with this barrel. But it was shooting groups that matched the Kriegers and the Bart lines in testing, so I was really happy with mine. I want to say I was using 23.9 grains of Reloader 15 under my Sierra 77s and 24.1 grains of Reloader 15 with the Burger 80 and a halfs. Yep, still no 24.0 here. Close though. My SDs, my velocities, they were all comparable to my other barrels. The cleaning was the same, and with the limited time I had in testing it, there's probably some more I can squeeze out of it based on the groups that I developed. Maybe I should prize some of that Turbo Thunder Lightning Sauce Reloader 15 stashed deep in my dungeon and see if maybe I can match my 2022 performances. Anyway, my scores in 2023 did not match 2022, but that wasn't the barrel's fault. I had the same scores with the Bart line two weeks prior to installing the new one. I had that Geisley dialed in right before Perry, and the target deficiencies were definitely me. As stated on any podcast from earlier this year, if you've been listening. Yep. Whiteoakarmament.com is where you'll find them as of today. Temporarily backordered, but $515 for the barrel, pre-ban, or post-ban. Or $1525 for the completed upper. And I might, I might just look into that option as I'm moving to a state that's a bit more tolerant to having inert metal parts locked in a safe. What else? Oh, I finally have the Elysio rifle back in my possession. It's been sitting at my FFL station for nearly three weeks because the only days I've had off from work in the last three weeks were Wednesdays. Guess which days they weren't open. Yeah, so I'm overjoyed to have it back with me and then when the time comes, I'll put it through its paces and give it a go. I threw the bolt back in it to see how the trigger felt, and I didn't notice anything out of the ordinary, but unfortunately, that's how the trigger felt right before sending it to Gary to begin with, with all the hang fires. But he's given it a full rundown and stamped it with a clean bill of health, so I'm confident that it'll be in good working order in the spring. Also, in the search for other bolt lube options, I got a text message from my good buddy Jerry with a photo of what's called hobo oil. 
Probably not the same stuff that the hobo offered me in downtown Cleveland this fall, but I was intrigued nonetheless. I think I might give some of this hobo oil a shot. It has great reviews from bench wrestlers and high power shooters alike. Jerry has some and says it does a decent enough job, which I can only assume means it's pretty awesome. It's either that or going to be the Milcom TW25B. Not sure yet. Maybe I need to buy a few more match rifles, each with different kinds of bolt lube on the bolt, just to test it out. Sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? Anyway, it'll be a few months before I get the shooting system going again because of the move, but when I do, I'll follow it up right here with the Elysio Saga and let you know how she's working out. On that note, guess what I had the pleasure of doing last week? I found a new home range. Let me tell you, part of the anxiety of moving out of state was finding a range that will be suitable to my needs. Now, I wouldn't call myself overly finicky. Others might disagree. But I have two fantastic home ranges where I live that I consider to be my home range and one more that I'm not a member of, but I also think it's a real pleasure to shoot at. The people are beyond great. The facilities are awesome and they both offer different characteristics that the other doesn't. That's hard to match. Recently, I had been chatting with Russ Thayer from Dead Zero down in Tennessee. If you're a member of the National Match Forum, you've probably read his outstanding match reports. Dead Zero happens to be one of the ranges in my driving distance limit, and I had plans to stop by twice to check it out, but it just never happened. Well, I was in Tennessee last week, and had a few hours of dead time, so I sent Russ a quick message and asked if he was free to meet at the range to show me what the fuss was all about. Wow, what a facility. 250 or so acres, mountains, trees, peace, quiet, shots, electronic targets, 1,000 yards, come on, what more could a boy ask for? I met Russ and Paul at the clubhouse, and after chatting for a few minutes, we hopped on a cart and Russ gave me the full tour. Impressive was just a bit of an understatement. Russ is working on developing a small bore range to shoot, if I recall correctly, 50 and 100 yards of small bore. And this part, I know for certain, small bore silhouette. Oh man, my eyes lit up. That is something I can definitely get behind. Not necessarily something I'm going to change my life around for, but definitely something that's an easy sport to introduce to juniors or maybe little tater tots down the road. He showed me the impressive pistol facilities. Not much on my radar at this time, but I could tell that a lot of thought was put into the construction of them. We took a quick tour of one of the two massive sporting clay courses, a quick glimpse into the 3D archery course, which is not a petting zoo, FYI, and then finally the 1,000-yard range playground. Atop of a wee hill sits the firing line to the 1,000-yard range. Russ had targets setting up at each yard line. Now, forgive me here, I was sort of mesmerized at the time, but I believe the yard lines were 100, 200, 300, 600, and 1,000 yards. He said he had the ability to shoot 800, 900, and 1,000 at the time, but didn't have the target set up for logistical reasons. All of the target frames were set up with the shot marker electronic systems, which is awesome. All the firing points had either a bench, a cement line, or turf sitting in front of it. Talk about a high-power playground. I was in heaven. What really got me, though, was the vision that the range owners and Russ had. It wasn't simply, here's what we got, kid, that kind of tour. It was more of a, here's what we're working on, 
here's what we would like to develop style attitude. And I loved it. We got back to the clubhouse and I was immediately signing up for membership. Partially because I was excited and partially because I received an email while we were on the tour that my house down payment had just cleared, so I knew that the move was definitely happening. What good timing. Well, thanks to Russ and Paul for the awesome introduction to Dead Zero near Spencer, Tennessee. I appreciate them both taking the time to show me the ropes, and I look forward to shooting with both of them in the upcoming spring. Technique talk? Is this really a technique talk? Okay, in the grand scheme of things, I'm not really sure. But I did have one listener named Rick reach out with a really good request, and that was to talk about some rifle maintenance items. Concurrently, I also had a discussion with a listener named Dave from down south who was having some issues with the dreaded carbon ring, suspectedly. So I thought I'd share some cleaning and prevention tips that have come up over the last few months that I thought were worth sharing. First, and briefly... I want to share how I clean the breech end of the rifle. In other words, from the beginning of the barrel backwards. I want to keep this relatively quick because I have a tendency to drone on and on and on. (laughs) I uh, don't want to put anybody to sleep. But before I get started, please keep in mind that this is the technique that I use. It works for me and other shooters may give you advice that either supports or opposes me and that's completely fine. You do your own thing, and if someone tells you otherwise, you're a grown-up. You'll have to make your own determination and decide how you want to proceed. Not a big deal. By the numbers, I clean the bolt carrier group and the upper receiver probably more often than I actually clean my barrel. The barrel is between 80 and 160 rounds, and if I'm between 50-round matches over a span of a few weeks, I will give the upper receiver and bolt carrier group some TLC just to keep things from getting, well, icky. First off, safety. Ensure your rifle is unloaded. However you decide to do that, don't skip this important safety tip. My good buddy's now wife was almost shot in the head because her airheaded boyfriend at the time failed to unload the weapon and had a negligent discharge while he was cleaning his handgun. Don't ask. Because I have no idea. But it's proof that things can happen. So, knock out the two pins and separate the upper from the lower. Remove the bolt carrier group and set it aside. I flip my upper receiver upside down and grab a few Costco shop towels, throw on some latex gloves, and wipe down the receiver interior quite thoroughly. I use Q-tips dipped in Hoppies number 9 to clean around the gas tube as well as the area around the beginning of the barrel. After that is dried and wiped clean, I set the upper aside. Now here's where I have advice that I don't necessarily disagree with, but I haven't put into practice myself. A buddy named Jim swears by spraying the inside of the upper with some brake fluid to really get it clean. I have no arguments there. In fact, after chatting with him late in the 23 season, I went and picked up some brake fluid of my own. Of course, my rifles were already cleaned and packed away for the year, so I will start doing that in the spring of 24. On to the bolt carrier group. I disassemble almost the entire bolt. The only parts that I don't mess with are the ejector pin and the three silver gas rings and the gas key on top of the bolt carrier. I set every single part on a paper towel next to another paper towel and put only the clean parts on the empty paper towel when I'm done with each part. In no particular cleaning order, the bolt itself. After doing a wipe job to clear off all the 
bolt lube and all the old crud, I will do my favorite part first, and that's cleaning off the buildup of the tail end of the bolt. I like to use a bolt scraper, one of a few that I own, and then I put a drop of hoppies on it after I scrape it, and I let that hoppy soak in for a minute or two. After wiping the residual crud off, I'll wipe in between the bolt lugs and run another Q-tip with hoppies on the bolt face to remove any leftover brass or carbon or just other junk that's on there. I'll clean the recess where the extractor sits and carefully, sometimes to my own demise, I'll run a Q-tip soaked with hoppies into the firing pin channel, tunnel, channel, from the rear all the way to the front. Yep, I like keeping my firing pin area clear and I've lost a few Q-tips in there and no, it's not fun to try to get those out. I'll also run a dry Q-tip through the same area and dry it out just to get rid of all that residual junk. With the extractor itself, I'll usually give it a good wipe down and run a very small metal poker, similar to a dental pick, into the extractor groove to remove any buildup. I do that very carefully, and sometimes I'll run a Hoppy's Q-tip in there as well. I'll put a small amount of CLP on the extractor O-ring and spring just for some longevity, and a little more CLP on the contact areas around the extractor, and then reassemble the bolt. Now the bolt is done. I'll wipe down and apply some hoppies to the cam pin and the firing pin retention pin and get them clean, wipe them down, put some hoppies, and sometimes annoyingly scrape off the firing pin of any of that green gunk that builds up on it. I do not want any firing pin impediences when I'm shooting. So if there's a buildup on the front or the muzzle side of the firing pin shoulder area, I'm scraping that off come hell or high water. Once those are clean and shiny and dry, back to the clean paper towel side. And now my least favorite part. The only thing that's left is the bolt carrier group. Besides a generous wipe down on the outside, I really focus on getting the inside of it as clean as I can without really driving myself bananas. Once it's free from lube and other stuff that can be wiped off with a shop towel, I'll scrape the inside of the front of the bolt carrier where the bolt is housed. I have a few different tools for this. I have one from Brownells that looks like a big black screwdriver. I have one from Real Avid and one from Vet Powered VMG. Which one do I prefer to use? Easy, it's whichever one's closest to me at the time. I'll get as much of that buildup scraped out of there as I can and then I'll get my dewy chamber cleaning rod and I'll put on a shotgun sized bronze cleaning brush that's heavily worn out. I'll wrap it with a cleaning patch full of hoppies, insert it into the front of the bolt carrier group, and I will spin it. I'll follow that with a dry patch in there once it's clean and repeat with a smaller bronze brush for the rear port of the bolt carrier group where the firing pin stops when it's sent forward during trigger break. I use a long Q-tip with some hoppies and clean out the rear of that bolt carrier group area to get the rest of that green and black and gray junk out of there as well. I'll also run a hoppies laden Q-tip in the figure eight area where the cam pin sits and get that area clean as well. Aside from that, we're basically back to lubing and reassembly. You can kind of get the feel for how I do things. Wipe, scrape, hoppies, lube, reassemble. I've used a few different lubricants in the past, but currently I'm on the CLP train that all of the local shooters seem to be on. I had used some Mobile One synthetic auto grease, that thick red stuff, which was a bad idea. Hoppy's gun oil I've also used and Mobile One Zero W50 fully synthetic motor oil. 
Of all of those that I've tried, I like the Zero W50 synthetic motor oil and CLP the best. I've learned that in order to prevent a lot of the carbon and gunk buildup in between your cleanings, the wetter the bolt, the more wiping, but the less scraping that you'll be doing. Trust me on this one. All right, lubing points. Okay, I'll lube the areas around the bolt's gas rings, the bolt body, the five surfaces of each bolt lug, and insert that into the bolt carrier group. I'll lube the cam pin and make sure there's ample lube on the cam pin hole. Trust me again here, we're asking a lot out of that little cam pin, so be nice to it. Next up, I'll insert a clean firing pin and then I'll add some CLP in the form of protection for the firing pin retainer pin. On the outside of the bolt carrier group, I'll get a bunch of CLP on the surfaces on which the bolt slides on the inside of the upper receiver. One more time around the bolt body after working it back and forth a few times in the bolt carrier group. And if there's any residual CLP on my hands, or if I'm just feeling frisky, I'll put some CLP on the inside surfaces of the upper receiver as well. I'll add some CLP to the T-handle, throw it back in, insert the bolt carrier group, and voila, game on. That's it. Now, on that note, a big item that I'll usually check every other cleaning or so. That is the dreaded carbon ring. I try to take care of this every two or three cleanings as more of a preventative measure rather than a reactive measure. Preventative, the rifle's happy. Reactive, well, the rifle has already been made upset and is acting like a child and popping primers at the range. Not cool. Here's some thoughts I wanted to pass along regarding the carbon ring that we see in our rifles as well as a few listener ideas that I thought were really helpful and worth sharing. And keep in mind, carbon ring happens to all rifles, but it's a real bugger and it happens more prominently with the AR service rifle than I'm used to in other rifles. First off, most of you probably know what the carbon ring is, but if you need a quick crash course, here it is. The carbon ring is a black buildup of mostly carbon that builds up in the forward area of the chamber where the end of your brass's neck sits during firing. There's a lot of pressure, heat, brass, copper, and other junk that's deposited right around that area when the bullet leaves the neck of the brass upon firing. Over a given number of rounds fired, it'll start to build up and can lead to a number of problems. Problems most notably overpressuring rounds going downrange. Now, sure, a little extra speed isn't usually a bad thing, but overpressuring rounds can lead to primer problems in the form of blowing them out of the brass pockets and locking them up in your trigger group, or piercing them allowing gas to blow rearward past the firing pin and cratering your bolt face and eroding the tip of your firing pin even further, making the next primer more susceptible to another piercing. Let's not forget that ending your day at the range could be you know, just as detrimental and probably blowing your primer pockets beyond usefulness might end your brass. Trust me, it's ugly. I've been chatting with a listener named Dave down south who is likely battling with the carbon ring buildup and he told me about a really cool tip. If you haven't looked for carbon ring before, maybe you haven't seen where it is or you just aren't sure if you're looking at the right area, take one of those Stony Point or Hornady seating depth comparator cases that has the case head drilled out and place it into your chamber. Now place a borescope through the back of the case 
and the area that you would expect the carbon ring will be close to the area that the borescope leaves the mouth of the case. Put the borescope in when it exits the mouth of the brass, stop. It's a really narrow band of black buildup and a borescope kind of struggles to show the topography of how much the buildup is present, but nevertheless, it's going to eventually need to be cleared out. Thank you, Dave, for that awesome tip. Here's another one that I have. When you locate the carbon ring on your borescope, take a Sharpie and mark the exact location on the borescope shaft where it meets the rear of the receiver. Or if you're using a bore guide to guide the borescope in, mark the borescope shaft where it meets the back end of your bore guide. This way, you can set the borescope next to your cleaning rod that you're going to be using and transfer that location mark over to the cleaning rod so you know exactly how deep to send that cleaning brush. Personally, I use the Dewey Chamber cleaning rod because it doesn't have a spinning red handle like on my barrel cleaning rods, but to each their own. So back to what I was mentioning earlier. My buddy Liam suggested a preventative maintenance structure of attacking the carbon ring about once every 300 rounds or so. My cleaning regimen is probably close to his and probably close to a lot of others out there because that's where I learned it. I take a fairly used up 223 bronze bush, bronze brush, there we go, wrap a cleaning patch around it and soak it with croil. Then I load it up with some JB bore cleaning compound, that's the blue stuff, and insert it into the correct depth. I'll give it about 20 or 30 spins on the cleaning rod Maybe I'll adjust the depth either deeper or shallower just to get some fresh JB on it and then spin it again. I'll run some hoppies on a wet patch on a jag through the bore and flush that stuff out. Then I'll take a look and see what my progress is. Basically wash, rinse, and repeat. It does take a little while and you gotta be patient. Sometimes one spin session will get it, sometimes it can take several. Keep in mind you're using a lightly abrasive compound and ever slow, ever so, wow, sorry, ever so slowly eating away at this carbon ring. So just be patient. Here's another thing that I've started doing lately that seems to help with the process moving a little faster. When I'm going into barrel cleaning sessions, I'll pull out the bolt carrier group. I'll do my clean of the entire upper receiver interior, and then I'll take a nylon or a bronze brush with a patch wrapped around it I'll soak it in some Bortec C4 carbon remover, push the patch into the carbon ring zone, and then spin it about 20 times. Then I'll just let it sit in that position while I clean the entire bolt carrier group. Now it doesn't fully clear it out, but I've actually found that it does eat away at some of that carbon pretty well. And the patch that I just spun in that zone when I remove it has a beautifully defined black ring right on that area. Just some food for thought. Now, if you want to go full nuclear, you can do that too. I am not advocating this. However, it's an option and it could damage your bore if you do it wrong. So you've been warned. You can, if you choose to, throw a patch around an extremely, extremely worn brush. Very, very worn because you want very little resistance in order to avoid barrel damage. Maybe even caliber down the brush one notch if you want to. You can wet the patch with Freol and use a touch of IOSO bore cleaner. That will kill and clear it out fairly quickly. It's aggressive and it won't stop taking out material if you clear out the carbon ring and accidentally keep going. And it scares the living snot out of me to use. However, 
if maybe you're really in trouble and maybe you haven't maybe ever cleaned the barrel or carbon ring out over a few thousand rounds, maybe, just maybe, you can do this. I'm not recommending it, just to be clear. But it's an option, like cleaning your new car with paint stripper just to get off some bird poop. It's an option. So, I've just about talked myself blue in the face here with the very light rifle maintenance topic, and I hope someone out there finds some of this useful. Listen, I'm no expert here, which is why I love listener input. I had the topic idea from Rick in the Midwest, who had some awesome questions and suggestions, so I'll try to see if I can include some more maintenance ideas into future episodes, like barrel replacement, trigger maintenance, bolt part replacements, and so on. Of course, we may need a highly qualified rifle specialist, such as John Holliger from White Oak, to fill in for my lack of knowledge. That would be a fun idea for the future. John, if you're listening, I'm listening. The time is 127. All right, everybody, welcome back to a very special mental machine. I've had the pleasure of working alongside one of our listeners named Scott out West, who's doing some really cool things for our sport in an area that's been actively growing in the high power community over the last few years with some great success. I'm really excited about this one because it goes along with something that I've always believed would probably work really well, but you know, in full transparency and to be perfectly honest, I've never really put it into my practicing repertoire to this extent. A few episodes ago, I mentioned the shooter who had the setup in his drive firing station with the video and the audio going on a TV screen in front of him. I didn't really allude to too much because I didn't really know much about it at the time. Well, Scott reached out to me and mentioned that this was likely his setup that I was referring to, which it was, and he gave me a lot of really good insight to the function and reasoning for doing it, as well as a few statistical performance numbers to back up his strategy. Scott is a cool cat, and he's given me a lot of useful information that I think would be helpful to others. And I think the timing couldn't really be much better now that it's December and it's dry firing season. Word of warning here, there's a lot that's going to be thrown in your direction here, and obviously I'm excited and talking quickly, but there are some shooters that might not have the time or energy or resources to follow the strategy, but we're talking about somebody who knew exactly what his training weaknesses were and went full steam ahead into overcoming it. Take whatever you can from this segment here. We've all said this or heard this at one time on the line or the other after the match or whatever it is, something along the lines of, man, everything goes really well in practice, but when I get up to the firing line for offhand, the nerves start, or right when it's time to start shooting offhand, I get into this unstoppable shaking thing, and I just can't get rid of it. Who's been there? Yeah, me for sure. I've talked about different ways of coping or overcoming these little gremlins, but those were strategies that worked for me, not necessarily everyone out there. It sucks. It really does. If you'll pardon my French, I'm sorry. You've prepared for the match, you've practiced your tail off at the home range, maybe you've even shot at this particular range a few times, you've shot great scores over the last practice sessions or your home range matches or whatever it is, now you get up there and after three minutes of preparation time, you start noticing the shakes. It's unmistakable. The typical seven or eight ring hold that you have diminishes to a two target board wide seizure and you start thinking to yourself, 
man, I'd be happy to just shoot a 75 on my feet today. But that's not what you prepared for this whole time. You've been shooting in the low 90s on the scat or during offhand practice sessions. Where'd this come from? Why are my knees feeling like wobbly lime jello? Sorry, horse lovers. You know where this leads to. A bad offhand, a mediocre rapid sitting string, and then maybe you get on your belly and you finish strong. And now you didn't place in the top five, or you end up first leather in a leg match. Or worse, you have a bad attitude for the rest of the day and take it home with you or take it to the next match. Ask me about that sometime. Well, what's the difference? What's the difference between the home range matches and the scat sessions and the dry firing sessions compared to the bigger match that's causing so much chaos? Let me create a little bit of a made-up scenario that sounds really obvious just in order to make me sound smart, but is really useless information to begin with. Let's take a guy named Winston. Winston has a full-length range in his backyard, like my old friend Forrest from a few episodes ago, and he shoots 20 rounds of offhand every Saturday and Sunday morning. Out of 200 possible offhand points, now he's scoring somewhere in the mid-180s, maybe the mid-190s basically equating to 90s to mid-90s for offhand in a 500-point match. Old Winston's feeling really good for the upcoming leg match. Winston then attends his first leg match of the season in a neighboring city, and he just drops the ball in standing. Classic story. But Winston would swear to everyone at the range that he's normally a 90 to 95-point shooter. Would people tend to believe him if he just shot a 70 in a leg match? Maybe, probably not, but maybe. He'd probably even start to question it himself if it kept happening again and again. Now, let's continue on with that same scenario, but take a left turn at Albuquerque this time, which is a hard word to spell. Let's say Winston is in some magical Narnia-type land where he shoots every day for 20 days, straight. Every day is a full national match course with different prizes at the end of each day. Maybe day one is a state championship. Day eight, maybe it's a congressional 30. And day 13, it's the president's 100. You see where I'm going with this? If day 16 happened to be a leg match with four matches still to go in the stretch of 20 days, do you think he's going to have the same nerves on leg match day as the Winston who practices at home all the time? I don't think so. I am absolutely convinced that he won't. Now, I could be wrong. I'm not a psychologist. I was wrong once in 2015. I mean, I've been wrong several times in my life, but I was also wrong that one time in 2015 as well. Now, I know I made up this scenario to exaggerate the point that I'm going to be making using Scott's setup as a prime example, but it does kind of drive home the fact that a shooter that's immersed in the most lifelike realistic training scenario is going to prevail over the other shooter who is in totally controlled environments. Another example, not that you asked for it or needed it, but non-competition related, is my job. I train in a very simulated environment for four to six weeks every two to three years. It's very structured, and I know every single thing that's going to be thrown at me for every day that entire training curriculum. Everything's totally made up, but designed to help me succeed when I leave my employer's training center. But when I actually get out in the real world, it's totally different. 
I'm not hearing that same comforting voice of my supervisor instructor helping me work my way through different real life scenarios. I'm now hearing other people who are now getting frustrated with me when they're looking for direction or guidance and need me to make a decision to keep things moving along in a safe and timely fashion. That's 90% of my job. Is my simulated training session setting me up for failure? No, not really, but it creates a comfort zone in my learning and progress that fails to introduce real life scenarios that are happening in real time. That part is absolutely not setting me up for success. Now, as time has moved on since the early days of this job existing, companies like mine have realized that the gap between training and real life is huge. And now they're sending us out in the workforce with a qualified trainer as we do the job in real time to help bridge that gap for a week or two. Do I think that's more useful than just sitting in a classroom all the time? You betcha. All right, dude, wrap it up. Where are we going with this? Well, Scott's training setup. Maybe some of you in a particular Facebook group have seen Scott's setup. As I look at it more and more, I started wanting to mimic it from my own setup. I believe in his approach that much. Let me describe it as best that I can. Scott is set up in a corner of his house or garage or shop or whatever, to the best of my knowledge. In front of his offhand standing position is his fully assembled shooting cart. His offhand tray is set up, an electronic trainer is connected to the top of it. It's all there. Also in front of him is a mounted TV screen with a full video playing, showing people shooting offhand at Camp Perry. Full video, full audio. Want to talk about a fully immersive experience? This is pretty close. Nothing like the sights and sounds of one of the most competitive firing lines in the country going off while you're practicing. Now, I don't know how many videos he has or what audio he has lined up, but it is working really well. Here are a few comments from Scott, who I might add is a very successful coach, not only coaching a lady junior who has been new to high power all the way to earning her distinguished badge in just nine months, but also previously coaching a collegiate dance team that went on to win Dancing with the Scars. Scott says, Having a big screen TV with the sights and sounds of Camp Perry overwhelming my senses has been very helpful to my training. In the Western U.S., we must travel long distances to reach a good EIC service rifle competition. Matches are held from Montana to California, including Colorado, Nevada, and Wyoming. It takes a good chunk of change to travel through these large states to attend a match. We have no local weekly club or league events, such as you mentioned, which I must say makes me jealous. My daily personal practice sessions are designed to mimic, in the best possible way, live match sessions. I too struggle with nerves at matches and strive to enhance my training in any way possible to mitigate any uneasiness. Scott finished it out with before the setup, which was three years ago, I was happy with an 85 in offhand. At Camp Perry this year, I shot a 95. End quote. Put that nugget deep into your brain for a moment and let it fester. Scott was happy. He was happy with an 85 in standing just three years ago. With his immersive training sessions at home and probably shooting on the line, let's not let's not kid ourselves here, he was overcoming a lot of his setbacks and is now shooting in the mid-90s and high-profile matches. As the Brits say, for whatever reason, the proof is in the pudding. 
I'm going to add just another quote that Scott put in there because I think it's kind of neat to know, not necessarily relating to the mental machine. Scott said, About five years ago, I was finally able to commit some time to working on service rifle EIC points and called the state association for a schedule. To my surprise, there hadn't been an across-the-course or EIC CMP service rifle match in over 13 years. And I was told, if you want a match, why don't you run it? So I started a club with small matches. That's at the Utah County Service Rifle Club. Then became a board member of the Utah Rifle and Pistol Association in charge of high power. My club and the state association now run about five EIC matches at a leased range in Centerville, Utah. Last year, I became the Utah State CMP director, and now we are in the process of building a Talladega-style mega range in Payson, Utah. When and if it's completed, it will be the CMP West headquarters. So, do I believe that Scott's approach is useful? Absolutely, and it has some weight behind it. Easy to set up? Well, that depends. It really depends on how far you want to take it and what resources you have available to make this work. Here are a few thoughts of my own if you're trying to get started with something like Scott's. Audio and visual are two totally separate things and affect shooters differently. For me personally, I could be watching a match all day with the volume on mute and not get an ounce of the jitters. However, when I'm on the first relay and I'm standing there and I hear the match director say, Relay number one. It really gets me going. Less so later in the year, but still to some extent at all times. Another listener named Tom out east is triggered by the word targets. That's a fairly common one also. For me, most of my jitters come from the audio segment of it. Like, I could see the American flag rise on the flagpole, but hearing the cannon go off, followed by the national anthem along with it, hits me so much harder. So, to get everything recorded, I would want some sort of video and matching audio that starts fairly early on in the match. If I'm at a club match that allows you some flexibility on equipment and positioning before the match, that will be really helpful. I'd also try attending a match that runs a fairly regimented line calling by the match director, someone who tends to stick to the script similar to Camp Perry or Camp Atterbury. I'd have my cart set up on the line before pre-prep and have a camera set up on the top handle of my cart facing away from me, essentially recording the shooter in front of me. The idea being that camera sort of mimics what you see as a shooter on the line during standing. If you're a lefty, of course, you better ask permission before you point the camera in somebody's face during their strings. Personally, I like my GoPro and I would probably have it on a flexible mount similar to what you might see if you shoot around Conrad Powers, who attaches his adjustable claw to his camera so he can position it for good shots. I'd have that camera set up facing away from me and start recording video for a few minutes prior to your relay being called to the line. Remember, you can always trim the front end of the video if it gets to be too long. Anyway, video recording going, the relay is called to the line, the prep period occurs, the string of 10 or 20 is fired, and then a ceasefire is called. Here's where you can do a few different things. If you want to record for all the different strings, you can either stop recording here, or if you want to keep in good practice, you can keep it recording through the rapid sitting string. 
or I suppose since we're dry firing, just the prep period and, and maybe the first shot. Good for practicing the standing to sitting and getting the first shot off. That way you can practice getting into position, getting things set up, and find errors in your changeover time with real video and audio going. Or if maybe offhand's all you want, you can end the recording there. Whatever works for you. I always err on the side of conservatism, so I would probably over-record the entire match and just squirrel away the other recordings in case I want it later. That would explain my workbench full of stuff I don't need. So now you have the video and the audio that's going to take you through an entire string. Most importantly, it's the string that's going to cause you, most likely, the most anxiety, which is probably offhand. After the match, you can simply save this into a format that will play on whichever video device you choose. If you can mount a TV in front of you during dry firing, even if it's just for a few months during the offseason and play it there, fantastic. If you can only play maybe on an iPad or mount a different sort of tablet on the wall in front of you or clip it to your shooting cart, great. If you're more of an audio guy or gal and can Bluetooth this thing to a set of headphones while you practice, all the better. Any sort of immersion is going to help you in the long run. And folks, this just doesn't have to be for dry fire. If you are allowed to do this and can safely do so, you can link this stuff up during some sort of video tablet and take it to your home range during live fire sessions as well. I suppose as long as you're not bothering somebody else or breaking your club rules or not violating safety policies or protocols, you can simply just play a whole match's audio or video while you shoot in real time to help create that match style feel. It's also a great way to practice having someone else calling your rapid fire sessions to get the timing and cadence down with all the other chaos going on in the background. Use it to your heart's content. It's your training. Use it how you feel appropriately. So as we wrap it up here, if you have some sort of video or audio that you're willing to share with other listeners that are really hungry for this type of stuff, let me know and I will try to get everybody in touch with each other. That's what this sport is about, helping each other out. Send me an email, jp at hphpodcast.com. I'm not exactly sure how we're going to share the files, but we'll tackle that hurdle when it comes. I hope that someone finds this useful and can put it into good practice. I really want to thank Scott out West for helping provide not only some serious oomph in today's mental machine, but also giving listeners a useful, practical, and proven strategy to help overcome a multitude of hurdles in the development of our high power game. All right, folks, it's about lunchtime, and we're about to wrap things up, finally. Before I go, I want to share a few thoughts that came across my desk from listeners that I thought were worth sharing. First off, I gave a shooter shout-out for my man Joel from the home state and had a quick back and forth with him via email, and he shared a nifty wind flag idea that I think I'll let him keep secret, but he also gave me another thought about what he keeps in his high-power cart. Joel writes, Something else I keep in my rifle bag and range cart is a short section of a cleaning rod with a chamber brush attached. This is great for pulling out the neck and shoulder of separated cases. I learned the necessity of having this after driving an hour to Bondfield, Illinois and having my second round separate without a mechanism for getting it out. End quote. Awesome idea, Joel. 
The idea being, if you have a case head separate, typically the base of the case will be extracted and ejected from the rifle, hopefully. But if you have a sticky case or one that didn't quite spring back out of the chamber, it's going to get stuck in there. Now, I know a lot of people with really little fingers, Brad, but I don't know of anybody with fingers small enough to get one of those stuck cases out. So, in Joel's situation, he can jam the cleaning rod with the brush attached into the chamber beyond the case mouth and rip the case out rearward as the bristles grab onto the case, kind of like pulling a Christmas tree backwards. That's a pretty cool idea. Another email I received was from Gary in the Midwest who had reached out to me quite a few weeks ago to discuss the topic of brass sorting, weighing, and outshooting your ammo at an eventual skill level. Of all the things that we've discussed back and forth over quite a few emails, he sent over a photo of some of his targets that really highlighted how well a shooter can shoot with mixed range brass. Mixed range brass really means mixed range brass. His brass was range brass that was sorted by weight alone in two or three grain increments. Then, of course, organized by numbers of firings. The target that he had sent over was shot with a worked up load at 100 yards on seven times fired range brass, holding about five shots within the group half the size of an X-ring. It was a beautiful knot. Gary was finishing out the season with some of his personal best scores, which is awesome to hear, but just as awesome to me was his tenacity and ongoing study of how different groupings of brass based on random qualifiers is still yielding relatively fairly good results. He has some random brass group by weight, some brass was once fired Lake City, and some was brass that was brand new from Starline fresh out of the box. While that specific target he sent over was at a 100 yards reduced target, he's also sent over a few scores at the 600 yard line with the old mixed brass that's been fired seven times that I would be completely happy with walking off the firing line with. Gary, keep up the good shooting and the testing. I find it interesting and somewhat comforting that you're finding good results with mixed, I can't say mixed quality, mixedly sorted brass and ammo. And finally, the last piece that I wanted to share is about new shooter clinics. Back in late 2022, I wanted to get into a segment that just never came to fruition about not only introducing new shooters to our sport, but retaining them to keep them coming back and keep the sport growing. It's just a big pyramid scheme, am I right? Yeah, right. Recently, I had an email from Dave down south who wanted to share a few ideas about how they run new shooter clinics and what they found to be effective in new shooter retention. I really liked his approach, so I thought I'd share it with everybody here. Now, this is a bit of a long statement, so stick with us here because it is important. Dave writes, Something that you did talk about that struck a nerve with me relates to something that I've been working on pretty diligently at our club, and that is how to introduce new shooters into the sport. I run CMP clinics for our club. As long as I could remember, the clinics were always run in a very similar format with very poor results. Poor results meaning gaining more shooters. Myself and a few other shooters diagnosed what we felt was the problem, and we believe we were trying to cram too much information into a one-day clinic. I understand that a two-day clinic is probably what is needed, but it is pretty challenging for us to put on a two-day clinic with the volunteers at the club and two days from the students. 
I got an idea from a shooter at the Riverbend Club in Georgia, and we started having rimfire sporter matches and rimfire sporter clinics. Once the students felt comfortable using a sling-supported position, then they are probably ready to be drug out onto the high power range and learn how pit operations work as well. We generally hold the rimfire clinic and then the high power clinic one month apart. That seems to be getting us a little bit better results with respect to getting a few new shooters. I think the jury is still out as to whether or not that technique is much more of an improvement over previous clinics. However, the point being is that what worked in the past is not working now and we're trying something different. Let me, JP, say that one more time. What worked in the past is not working now and we're trying something different. Something that I would like to see as one of your segments is perhaps sharing other clinic ideas as well as considering what constitute as a good order of operations as we introduce people into high power that have got no experience. For example, many years ago, I was observing one of our clinics and one of our senior shooters, probably a high master, was critiquing the student on the way he was holding his foot, as he explained, was throwing its natural point of aim off. Now, as we were shooting the 200-yard line, I suspected that wasn't the new shooter's problem at the moment, that there was something else. And the point I'm trying to make is that there are certain things that new shooters need to focus on first before worrying about other minimal or trivial issues. End quote. Dave, a million times thank you for changing your approach to new shooters. The fact that you're getting repetitive attendees means you're on the right track. Whether it's because of the structure of your training or maybe the quality of instruction that you're providing, or maybe it's just the people that are involved in the instruction on your side that are keeping the people coming back, I have to applaud you for your success. I hope it continues because it's absolutely necessary. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, for one, I'm hoping that someone out there has had success with new shooter retention, is willing to shoot me an email and get some fresh ideas out there for other clinic instructors looking for them. That would be awesome. Secondly, I can't pretend to be the all-American hero here and say I've done my part to help new shooters at clinics on training sessions. I know the podcast has helped because I get emails from a lot of new shooters who are new to the sport within the last few months or maybe even the last few years or so, but because I'm time limited with being at home and being on the road so much, I'm hoping to at least contribute a little bit to helping share some ideas over the air and perhaps connect some people to help improve the new shooter turnout at competitions and leagues. If you have something to contribute here, maybe you're a clinic director or better yet, maybe you're one of the many shooters who listens to the podcast that is a new shooter that's been retained. Please let me know what you think I can put up on the podcast for others. New guys and gals, maybe hit me with some things that really kept you interested or motivated, or let me know what brought you back to the next match or the next clinic. Clinic directors, what do you see that's been working? What can I pass along to others? Shoot me an email, jp at hbhpodcast.com. I'm all ears. Okay, that was a lot. I'm hoping this carries over for the next few weeks because it's time for me to be a bit absent in the next month or so. Not to throw too much out there or keep mentioning it, but I have a home move coming up in the next few weeks, which has been overwhelming to orchestrate with my girlfriend and the work schedules, and it's just decimated my free time. And for the next few weeks, I have pretty much have to prioritize that. But 
As promised, the content will still be loaded into the chamber, ready to be fired when everything calms down. As always, thank you for the continued emails, the continued support, and listening to the podcast. It's been really fun chatting with you guys and gals back and forth via email. The listener group has more than doubled in the last few months. So I have to, again, just say thank you for spreading the word and clicking subscribe to it so that you can get notified when episodes come out. If you have something that you want to chime in on, add to, fight me on, let's rumble. You can send me an email anytime at jp at hphpodcast.com. jp at hphpodcast.com. That's HPH for the High Power Hangout. Until next time, remember to make every single shot count. I'll see you on the next one.